and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. Each month I'll bring you essays, stories, or poetry from Parabola Magazine's four decades of archives. You can find all these resources and much more by visiting our website at parabola.org or finding us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. This month, as we head away from the autumn equinox and into the darkness of winter, I'd like to share with you some pieces from Parabola's archive on the subject of guidance. We'll begin with Josh Bedeker's essay on one of my favorite musicians and writers, Leonard Cohen. This is The Poet and the Shepherd. Since Leonard Cohen died, I've been thinking a lot about King David, perhaps the Ur ancestor in Cohen's lineage as a Jewish poet who also sought the secret chord that would bring God joy. King David did everything large screen format. He was a warrior without peer, a prodigious lover, the unifying king of ancient Israel, the seed of messianic consciousness. It is said that the Messiah will come from David's line. And he was also a man who experienced immense grief and suffering in his short time on earth. He was a betrayer, an adulterer, and a murderer. He was a grieving father and a confused monarch. Robert Pinsky writes that even though David is both horrible and beautiful, he is so in a way that reminds you of human beings. Indeed, there is something about David that brings us closer to our own imperfect selves, how vast our longing to love, how devastating our failures to do so. In this spirit, it is worth remembering that before he was king, before the fame and the infamy, David was a shepherd and a poet. And in a way, it is those two grappling archetypes inside him that make his story so uneven and so compelling. The shepherd. In fact, the first thing we learn about David is that he is a shepherd. When the prophet Samuel, with the intention of identifying the future king, asks Jesse the Bethlehemite to bring forward his sons, the prophet sees a row of hardy young men, but he knows the king is not among them. So he asks Jesse, are all these the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. David is sent for, recognized, and secretly anointed. It is easy to either romanticize the shepherd's calling, the humble, simple servant of God, or ignore it altogether, overly metaphorized as it has been, the shepherd as religious leader and the people as the flock. But we can't ignore it. Almost all of the patriarchs and matriarchs in the Hebrew Bible were shepherds, a job that most fundamentally requires practice in the art of caretaking. As a precocious wunderkind, David tells Saul that he is ready to fight the giant Goliath precisely because he has killed bears and lions as part of protecting his sheep. The shepherd bears this heavy responsibility to assume responsibility for others, but it is born of an awesome knowing that each of us are caretakers for the other. It is not that David always succeeds as a shepherd in the conventional sense, that is, in literally protecting his family and his people. In truth, his failures to do so are profound and chilling. But David is aware of this responsibility, chosen for this responsibility, and his struggle with how to live into this responsibility is a struggle that is familiar and intimate to each of us. How can we realize our obligation to serve and love others? Emmanuel Levinas said that in our choosing to come into awareness of this responsibility, we become chosen.
the poet. The rabbinic tradition imagines David going to sleep each evening with his harp by the open window. When the night wind blew through, he would awake and compose psalms. Before he knew for sure that David is a threat to his throne, King Saul brings David into his house to calm his vexations by playing soothing music. The books of Samuel tell us that David was a man who was loved by many, but David himself only seems to express love for God, for the beloved without horizon. We see this in David's ecstatic dancing before the Ark of the Lord as it is brought to Jerusalem, with whirling and joy unbridled enough that his wife upbraids him later for not acting like a king. And we see this love of God in his greatest gift to those who come after him in the book of Psalms. Traditional Jewish teaching imagines David to be the author of the Psalms, and in this imagining, David becomes the master of the entire spectrum of the emotional register. We have his outer story in the two books of Samuel, and to a more limited extent in Chronicles, and we have his inner story in the Psalms, something we don't have access to with any other biblical figure. Through the 150 Psalms, we can read David expressing grief and remorse, anxiety and fear, longing for union and revenge, pleas for rescue, and ecstatic love. And in the presence of these psalms, we can feel our own versions of these emotions vibrating with his. In a composite sense, through the psalms, we slowly get at what we imperfectly call praise. David knows that praise does not consist of saccharine, one-dimensional platitudes designed to flatter the divine, as we often understand it to be. Praise is a cry of life. It is not always to be offered in relation to getting what we want. It is confessional, not limited to the contemporary usage of getting something specific off our chests, but in the ancient sense of speaking what is true. Praise has something to do with allowing ourselves to be scarily alive in our innate messiness, allowing ourselves to sing to the hollow and hallowed darkness. Leon Weaseltier, a dear friend of Cohen's, wrote something that stood out for me in the host of wonderful obituaries that appeared after Cohen's recent death. He describes Cohen's response when Weaseltier's fifth grade son, for a project he was doing at school, asked him, Dear Uncle Leonard, did anything inspire you to create Hallelujah? Cohen wrote back, I wanted to stand with those who clearly see God's holy broken world for what it is, and still find the courage or the heart to praise it. Emily Dickinson wrote that pain is missed in praise. David does not miss it. He gets that praise as a full-body endeavor, a commitment to showing up day after day in our beauty and in our ruin. The Benedictine nun and writer Kathleen Norris writes gorgeously about the Psalms, which she describes as wild and often contradictory poetry in her book, The Cloister Walk. The Psalms demand engagement. They ask you to read them with their whole self. They reveal our most difficult conflicts and our deep desire to run from the shadow. In them, the shadow speaks to us directly. As we often say in synagogue, trust that if a Psalm does not speak to you at any given moment, that it is speaking to another in our midst. The Psalms, more than anything else in the liturgy, ask us to pray with this awareness that we are opening our mouths collectively. And I think it is precisely the Psalms' insistence on our shared experience that connects our poet selves to our shepherd selves. The poet prays, 
and when the poet is able to break out of the self-absorption that too often characterizes the search for meaning and move through her own pain toward a sensitivity to others' pain, she touches the shepherd's cloak. A teacher of mine in Jerusalem taught that there is a moral dimension in the bracha or blessing formula in Judaism, where we say, blessed are you, the Lord our God, our God. We say this, and if we are really listening, we realize that something so personal and intimate, prayer, is actually bringing us further in toward community, seen and unseen, Jewish and non-Jewish. We are not only praying on our own behalf, somehow embedded in the grammar, is a glimpse of the collective source and the collective voice singing to this source. The awareness in the bracha becomes imperative. And it strikes me now, years after receiving this teaching, that there is a reason our God comes in the second clause of the sentence, following after blessed are you. Before we learn to say our when we pray, first we need to learn to say you. Just the very act of saying you, capitalized or not, draws us out of the muteness of our inchoate suffering and joy by bringing us into the possibility of relationship. David, as poet, teaches us how to say you. He holds nothing back and pours out his heart, no matter how broken, sacrilegious, or shuddered. David the shepherd teaches us that it is only after we've done this that we can say our. And so it is within the blessing itself that the poet and shepherd connect embedded in the grammar. In the book of Hours, Rilke describes God forming us and then softly giving us words we are doomed to forget as we walk out of the tunnel into life. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. D let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. To me, this line, just keep going, is the point of the Psalms and really the entire search for meaning. During an early initiatory experience, the spiritual teacher Aviasanti said he heard an inner voice propelling him forward. Keep going, keep going. We could interpret this any number of ways, but I like tying it back to Rilke and the Psalms. No feeling is final. It is not just for our own psychology and our placing our trust in the dynamic nature of things, knowing that this phase, emotion, or constricted moment too will pass. It is not just a reminder to have courage and to continue along no matter what comes. Keep going is also a theological mandate on the path of searching for meaning. We are still in the process of becoming, as God is still in the process of becoming. There is no arrival. In their own distinct ways, our poet self and our shepherd self remind us of this. The shared practice of both the poet and the shepherd is devotion. Night after night, David placed his harp by the window. Day after day, David set out with his flock. Norris writes that while children can praise, again in the fullest sense of that term, spontaneously, it can take a lifetime for adults to recover this ability. We tend to think that we recover through grace, and maybe sometimes that is true, but the great artists of our time, like Cohen, teach us that it is a practice of daily supplication that helps us relearn praise, a praise that as adults will now require more of us. When I saw him in concert three years ago in Portland, 
Cohen began the show by telling us that time was short, that he was about to turn 80, that he had promised himself if he made it this far, he would let himself start smoking again, and that in any case he suspected this was his last time to roll through town. He promised, so tonight we are going to give you everything we've got. And he did. His music and presence that night could only be described as devotional. At times he got down on his knees before his singers and musicians in supplication, like an old king who still loved God, maybe more than ever, who recognized the futility of searching for meaning, but was ever more committed to continuing to do it. We could say the search for meaning, which is a holy search, becomes imperiled whenever the poet self and the shepherd self are out of balance. If one is only a shepherd, she will risk being pedantic and overly serious. Her ego will get in the way of her true service, and she will forget that each being shares the burden of caretaking. It is not up to her alone. The image of one shepherd over many no longer holds. Similar to how it has been said that the next Buddha is the Sangha, the Jewish view of redemption imagines a shepherd collective, a community of shepherds taking turns, taking care. If one is only a poet, without a good measure of shepherd mixed in, there is a risk the poems will not reach outward and be in dialogue. They will not intend toward the transformative, which is where all poems must intend, even if they fail. The poet brings to the shepherd an appreciation for the multiplicity of truths, for the impossibility of fixing anything. Without the poet self, we become ideologues. The shepherd brings to the poet a reminder that too often our search becomes self-serving, discovery of self for its own sake, that others become stepping stones for us on the road to some imagined actualization. Often the search for meaning unwittingly becomes a defense against whatever or whoever is quietly sitting across from us in the cafe, across the table, by the side of the road, the other in our life as it is. As we go through life, it is tempting to think that our search for meaning is a story that never delivered on its promise or was somehow falsely designed with many fatal flaws. But maybe the search is simply a force that propels. In truth, there was nowhere else to be than on this search. Everything brings God closer to us, even those things that seem to bring us further away. And the secret cord is ever elusive. It is like the Jorge Luis Borges story of a seeker in search of the one true word, finally discovering it, only to hear another word spoken in its place a moment later. Maybe the secret chord that King David and Leonard Cohen sing of is the dawning knowledge that the word is different each time. Whatever each of us does, whatever our work is, the task is an integration of the poet and the shepherd. One could posit that it was this very soul-weave that led to David's being chosen as king. Psalm 88 says, My one companion is darkness. I take this to mean our work on the search for meaning is to commit to not only waiting in the darkness, but singing to it, and to not use the not knowing to abdicate responsibility, to not use the fundamental insecurity of being a human being, as an excuse to cease serving or praising.
We'll turn next to an essay that is exclusively available on our website at parabola.org, a web exclusive, This is Guidance, by Susan McCaslin. The etymology of the word guide, both noun and verb, is the late 14th century Old French guidar, to guide, lead, conduct, from the Frankish witan, or show the way, and the Proto-Germanic witanan, or to look after or guard. So guidance in many myths and traditions involves someone or something, a power, a presence, a god, god, spirit, leading a seeker on a path. The word guidance is often tied mythically to the underlying archetype of the journey. By being born, we all find ourselves on a journey of some kind. For me, books rather than human or supernatural presences were my original and primal guides. When I was about four, my aunt, a socialist school teacher, stored her collection of fairy tales and children's anthologies in our family's basement. Even before attending school, I would sneak down to clasp the curious volumes in my hands, inhale their musty fragrance, and study the enchanting illuminations that accompanied the then indecipherable texts. When I began to read, I started carrying a volume or two at a time to my room, where I would lie buried under the covers with a flashlight, following the trail of one nursery rhyme, story, myth, or poem after another. My literary companions conducted me on a journey as surely as would any living, breathing guide. While casting my eyes over the symbols on the pages, I communed with the minds, hearts, and spirits of others from imaginal places, both human characters, animals, and spirit beings. Before I knew anything about the poet William Blake, for instance, the rhythm of his short lyric Infant Joy from Songs of Innocence in Journeys Through Bookland pulsed through my body. The My Book House series led me through Mother Goose, Grimm's, and Anderson's fairy tales, and on to short excerpts from Homer, the European classics, and fragments of Eastern literature. Before too long, human guides began to manifest. My seventh grade English teacher, Mr. Donald Lemieux, became my first human guide outside the family, the one who set my feet on the poetry path. As an introspective, intensely self-conscious preteen, I was surprised when Mr. Lemieux cast me in the role of one of the witches in a classroom enactment of the opening scene from Macbeth. Hurling out the feisty chant, double, double, toil and trouble, I became momentarily one of the weird sisters and completely let go into another persona. Later, Mr. Lemieux assigned the class the task of composing an original poem. In fear and trembling, I presented him with one of my closet efforts. After taking my word that I had not copied it from a book, he scratched his chin and suggested, would you like to take on the role of literary editor of our student newspaper? All you have to do is collect poems from other students, add some of your own pieces, and paste them into a few columns. Some of us ran off sheets of paper on a mimeograph machine, stapled them together, and distributed them in the hallways. Though my role seemed small, Mr. Lemieux was the first to offer me an identity as a poet, a writer. Successive poetry mentors appeared. Robin Blazer, who supervised my MA thesis at Simon Fraser University, and P.K. Page, who chose a sequence of my poems on William Blake as the first place winner of a chapbook contest in 1997. These guides seemed to appear in my life precisely when I most needed them. 
Looking back, I feel I have been drawn to certain people who have been drawn to me in a timely way essential to my development and in response to an unspoken need. I feel these encounters have not been due merely to luck or entirely random. After discovering concepts of pre-existence and reincarnation, I wondered if I might have had some involvement in choosing these pivotal helpers before my birth. In each instance, I found myself astonished that somehow, despite all my mistakes and imperfections, I ended up precisely where I was supposed to be, at exactly the right time. Guidance has presented in my life as gentle, non-coercive. It is not a violation of my free will and does not imply a patriarchal god or a deterministic worldview. Somehow, I am engaged in the choices as well as the outcomes, though not their prime mover. It seems as if I occasionally, unaccountably, join my will and identity with something larger, a gracious love field moving in and through both me and the world. Guidance relates to being fully alive, to being surprised by meaning. Not only do I feel called to create, but to co-create or participate in the flow of an intelligent energy and presence that is at some level my innermost core and yet deeply other. Talking to others about guidance has validated my sense that such epiphanies are universal, but also that we cannot induce or command them. I most attribute this continuing sense of guidance to a life-changing relationship with Olga Park, a modern Canadian mystic I met in September of 1969, when I was 22. Olga was living in a tiny cottage in Port Moody, British Columbia, at the time. After our first encounter, I began to study with her and continued to be her learner until her death 16 years later. More, more recently, I have written a spiritual memoir, Into the Mystic, My Years with Olga, where I reflect on not only those formative years, but on the ongoing legacy of Olga's presence in my life. As my central spiritual teacher and guide, she remains unsurpassed. The first thing she said to me was that anyone who establishes a regular practice of contemplation, meditation, or prayer will eventually receive healing, comfort, and guidance from within, and that it is indeed appropriate to ask for these things. She also believed that guidance is universal, but that receptivity and a strong desire of the heart may accelerate the universe's responsiveness. Experiencing guidance does not mean one escapes pain, suffering, and loss, but that these experiences are gathered up in a larger whole where love has the final say. Ever since meeting Olga when she was 78, I have been engaged with the living archetype of the guide and divine guidance. In 1969, Olga was the elder, the wise crone. Now at the age of 70, the signal from the heavens hints it is my turn to step into elderdom, to allow the universe to shape me into a small, imperfect embodiment of the wisdom I sought so intensely when I was on the cusp of adulthood. One thing is clear. The purpose of learning from Olga was to help me connect with my own interior guidance, not to make me dependent on her. Another human encounter that seems guided was that of meeting and establishing a partnership with my husband of going on 40 years. I do not believe our compatibility means we are especially privileged or mature, but that we have somehow entered a continuous conversation that is never boring or finished. Though very different from one another, 
We have developed side by side without intruding on each other's individuality. We have become what Olga spoke of as companions of the way. We became best friends for several years before deciding to conjoin our lives. Though he was a younger man who had lived and breathed the wilderness from early childhood, and I, nine and a half years older and more drawn to books and the cultural amenities of the city, we soon discovered that we had developed rich, parallel interior lives. After we decided to get married, he shared one of his visions. In a dream that seemed much more intense than ordinary ones, he found himself on the narrow street of a 17th century town somewhere in France. He was a novice, intent on taking his vows as a monk. I was postulant, preparing to become a nun in a house of a Catholic religious order. We had met previously, but did not know each other well. As he passed the religious house where I was living, his gaze was drawn to a second-story window where I stood manipulating in my hands a heavy silver cross inlaid with turquoise. I shifted the cross so that it caught the rays of the sun, directing them onto his head. Immediately, he stepped through the doorway of the house, ascended a flight of stairs, and opened the door of a room where he find, found me lying prostrate on the bed, weeping. I did not speak, but he felt an intense heaviness enveloping us both. He knew he was not allowed to remain on the premises, so withdrew. Later, when revisiting the dream, he indicated he felt we had desired to be together at that time, but were prevented because of the strictures of the church. Through this and other such experiences, we came to feel that although we were unable to unite in previous lives, somehow in this lifetime we have been blessed with both marriage and a child. Decades later, in 2013, when I spent three months in Aix-en-Provence with our grown daughter, I stumbled on a small hotel that had earlier been a convent run by the Augustinians and immediately felt that it was the religious house my husband experienced in his dream. The window, the balcony, the street, and the architecture had an uncanny aura of being a place where I had once lived. Though past life regressions are difficult to validate empirically, we are convinced there is more to individuality than can be explained by who we seem to be based on a single lifetime. As young people, both from Christian backgrounds, we knew that reincarnation was considered heretical by most Christian churches. But as I did more research, I discovered some scholars argue that before the forging of the doctrines of the early church as established by the Nicene Council, and even at the time of Jesus, reincarnation was a widely held belief in the Middle East. It was taught by Pythagoras, Plato, the theologian Origen of Alexandria, pre-Christian and Christian Gnostic groups, and within esoteric Christian communities, so is not exclusive to Eastern religious constructs. Olga, who became my husband's mentor as well as mine, experienced continual direct contact with the life beyond death and taught both the pre-existence of the soul and the survival of consciousness after death. However, Olga warned us of the dangers of getting lost in interest in past lives and the importance of living in the present. The notion of individuals having some form of pre-existence came to our attention when I had a powerful dream in my early 20s of giving birth to a blue-eyed child. This proved to be so, but not until I was almost 40, two years after Olga's death. In the early stages of my pregnancy, my husband dreamed that a blonde, blue-eyed girl of about two or three came running up to him in a mall, pulled back the newspaper he was reading, and excitedly asked, are you my daddy? My mommy and I are looking for my daddy. 
Such experiences as these made us wonder if children do not sometimes have a role in choosing their parents. The psychologist William James argues in the varieties of religious experience that direct mystical experiences are not only diverse, but universal. They possess what he calls a noetic quality. Although so similar to states of feeling, mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. They are states of insight into depths of truth unplumbed by the discursive intellect. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, all inarticulate though they remain. And as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for aftertime. Certainly, a gnosis involving spiritual guidance is present in many world religions and spiritual traditions. For example, First Nations myths and stories refer to non-human guides, many of whom appear in the form of animals like wolf, eagle, deer, bear, raven, or coyote. Celtic mythology is shamanic in its origins, replete with tales of beings from the liminal otherworld. My Irish grandmother introduced me as a child to the magic of the world of fairy, the interior dimensionality of nature. For her, trees were sentient beings, elders to be regarded with respect and to whom we could go for refuge and help. Her stories of the wee folk who lived in the roots and branches of the trees transported me to the borderlands between our subjectivity and those larger worlds. In the three monotheistic religions of the West, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, guidance is present in the metaphor of life as a journey or way. When struggling on the path that leads through the wilderness, the Israelites encountered angels, helpers, prophets, and wisdom teachers. Each monotheistic religion has its mystical streams. In Judaism, the Kabbalah. In Christianity, the European mystics like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. And in Islam, Sufism and mystical poets like Rumi and Hafiz, to name only a few. In a recent volume of poetry, consisting of a series of Persian-style couplets or ghazals, Two Minds, poet Harold Rennish places at the very heart of his book the Islamic prophet Al-Qidr or Kejr, the Sufic green man. He writes that Kejr is one of the Afrad, the unique ones who receive illumination directly from God without human mediation. They can initiate seekers who belong to no order or have no human guide. They rescue lost wanderers and desperate lovers in the hour of need. While on pilgrimage on the northern Camino in Germany, Rhenish discovered that Kejer had become his interior guide. What Rhenish's poems suggest is that sometimes we do not find the guide, but the guide finds us. Perhaps that guide is our own deepest self, our higher self, in union with the mind and creative intelligence of the universe. As a person drawn to both Eastern and Western mystical paths, guidance for me involves awakening to the epiphanies occurring within and around us all the time, but of which we are not always aware. The preconditions for being at one with inner guidance are receptivity and attention. The pitfalls of a false sense of guidance are legion. Putting faith in a god or spiritual realm entirely outside the world and the processes of nature sets up a binary not only between earth and heaven, time and eternity, but also between the guide and the guided. The metaphor of the way or road can be reduced to the belief that there is only one right way and that some of us know what it is and have the right to impose it on others. 
The way then becomes merely a march through history determined by power structures driven by the human ego, rather than a dynamic wisdom inherent in all things. How often have priests, ministers, or leaders of corrupt religious structures claimed to have been enacting God's will for others, whether based in a literalistic interpretation of scripture or their own private revelations? And often these blind leaders of the blind hold an absolute certainty about the truth of their revelations. Belief in reincarnation can lead to smugness, since people who have what they consider a fortunate birth may believe they have earned their elite social status, as well as the right to disregard the suffering of the less fortunate. If people think God or a divine power guides and rewards those who are good, serious problems arise. Why do some people pray and ask for guidance but seem to receive no answer, while others feel they have God's special friendship and protection? Why should my life be guided and someone else's not? Are the kids born with fetal alcohol syndrome or refugees born into war zones guided? Many of these questions and assumptions spring from false concepts not inherent in an authentic sense of guidance. Yet the experience of guidance need not be tied to a belief in a patriarchal god who controls the world from outside. Alfred North Whitehead, a 20th century process philosopher, argues that what many have called God is a creative intelligence present within the process of lived experience, who creates, loves, and suffers within and beside us and things. This creative intelligence, akin to creative imagination, is alluring, lures us toward wholeness, but also dwells within the process itself. In process and reality, Whitehead's divine presence becomes the poet of the world with tender patience, leading it by his, her, or their vision of truth, beauty, and goodness. Many people encounter several guides in a lifetime. My recently deceased friend Donald Grayston, a Canadian Thomas Merton scholar, playfully suggested his dog had been his spiritual director, and I have no reason to challenge that assumption. Yet a person need not seek an external guide to have a sense of interior guidance. Discovering one's inner compass is a lifelong process. Interior guidance is available to everyone and never merely the possession of a spiritual elite. We all live, move, and have our being in a larger force field. What if the notion of guidance has been too narrowly focused on the individual? What if guidance is a collective process as well as an individual one? If the individual is guided, then perhaps the larger cosmos is as well. The poet Dante implies as much at the end of his Paradiso when he speaks of the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Mystics who speak of the microcosm indwelling in the macrocosm and vice versa locate our individuality within cosmic configurations. In this unified context, being guided means coming into alignment with the greater spheres. Responding to guidance involves engaging actively with a dynamic order that includes both randomness and order. Inclusive being, God, goddess, the gods, the divine, or whatever we wish to call the unnameable mysteries, constantly invites us to participate more fully in the processes of nature and a more inclusive reality. Hoping to avoid the pitfalls of glibly expressing a sense of divine guidance, I continue to ask, knock, wait, and open. I continue to act out of faith that divine love and wisdom desire to move in and through nature, all life forms and species, the planet, the universe, and each of us, despite the short-sightedness of our egoic self-will. 
Seeking guidance does not mean being naively positive, unresistant to injustice, but choosing to enter a state of receptive unknowing where an empowering love can emerge beyond all our definitions, explanations, and finalities. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. We'd also love to connect with you on social media, where we have active communities on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Remember that thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for today comes from J.R.R. Tolkien, who said, Some believe it is only great power that can hold evil in check, but that is not what I have found. It is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay small acts of kindness and love. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.